Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brother Cousins podcast. Today, we are finishing up our Manly March series for March 2023 with episode number 72. Today, we're going to be talking about man as king. So to recap, the last three previous episodes, we talked about the masculinity of Jesus and how he fulfills the archetypes of prophet, priest, and king in a perfect and fulfilled way. The next episode after that, we talked about man's role as prophet in his home, the mouthpiece of God. Then in the last episode, we discussed a man's role as priest, intercessor, and a blesser of his home due to his relationship with God. And today, we're going to talk about man as king and how we follow in the footsteps of that archetype um, in bringing the order and rulership and leadership of God into our homes to bless our families. We want to talk a little bit about our roots we have in Adam with that kingship, the shadow of that, which we find later in the book of Genesis. And we also want to talk about how we as men have to follow the scripture and follow the leadings of our archetype of Christ in the way that we exercise the dominion of God for the benefit of all in our homes. And uh, I know there'll be some practical application along the way, guys. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention at this point that Jeffrey is now even more of a dad than he was in the last episode. Uh, great news that his third daughter was safely born and um, mother and baby are doing great. Jeffrey, congratulations. And we're so um, thankful for the blessing that God has given your family with one more child. Yes, sir. Thank you. Yeah. So that's uh, great news. Very grateful. All right, guys, so let's jump in to Genesis 1. That's really where the action starts. And the, the picture here we see in Genesis 1, and starting in verse 27, I want to note a couple of things. So the Bible says that God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so first off, we're made in the image of God. And there's a lot of things that that means. It doesn't, look that, doesn't mean that we look like God. Uh, it means that... We are made in a similar fashion to him uh, with his attributes and his nature imbued in us as part of our personhood. Uh, the fact that we, like God, are a three-part being. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. We are body, soul, and spirit. There's a lot that we could go into there. But we're made in the image of God. And one of the things that God does is he exercises dominion and rulership. It's part of his very nature. It would be impossible. God could not be God if he didn't exert his sovereignty over the universe. And in verse 28, the Bible says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so here's some pretty specific commands that we get from God um, to be fruitful and multiply. And some of us take that incredibly literally, wink, Jared, uh, and now Jeffrey a little bit more. So, um, so that's we have the equal amount of kids, Christopher. I know, literally, <laughs> you and I have as many kids as Jared does all together. So, <laughs> so y'all just need to quit slacking. <laughs> <laughs> you inspire us all, Jared. You really do. <laughs> but that's part of it. We we are commanded, you know, by God to be fruitful and multiply. Um, I'm glad that we had three. We did more than replace ourselves. We replaced ourselves in plus one uh, on our family. So, uh, but the the other thing there is that God expects us as humanity to to exercise a dominion, uh, to subdue the earth and to rule over all the creatures and the. I think it's implied here that we would do that underneath the umbrella authority of God, according to his law, his will, and his nature. And that any time that we go outside of that, then that leadership or that rulership is going to go sideways really fast. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that, or are we just kind of making that point and, and moving on there? No, I, I think that it's a good point, and it really it highlights some of the rationale behind some of the structure that we have moving throughout the rest of human history. 
Mm -hmm. So you think specifically about second or first Timothy chapter two, right around the end of the chapter verses eight through 15. Um, it talks about some of the women's role in the church, specifically in the assembly, the way that they're supposed to keep silence as opposed to the men. And, and what it's doing is it's talking about how there's different roles for men and women. And he, he gives the why here and he points all the way back to the garden. He gives two basic reasons. Number one, he says that it's because Adam was formed first and then Eve. But then he goes on to say that Adam wasn't the one that was deceived, but rather the woman was deceived and fell into transgression. Now, verse 15, for anybody who thinks that we are, are so masculine that we are you know, completely putting women, women underfoot, um, I don't believe that Paul is doing that. I don't believe that we're doing that. Verse 15, I believe, really opens up the dialogue to women are still going to be involved in a very active role in the Messiah coming and being born and salvation coming to all people, as well as having a role in teaching their children through the example of their faith, their love, their holiness, and their self-control. But here, Paul points back to the beginning, and he gives two basic reasons. And the second is, whenever we deviate from the way that God has put things in place, the fall of man came next. Right. Yeah. I mean, literally all that Eve did was eat some fruit and then the whole thing went south. Uh, but it was because humanity was exercising a, a rule or dominion or activity outside of the, the word of God, the law of God. And, uh, the, the result of that is death, destruction, and chaos. So we don't have to go very far in human history from that point where we've got the earth is full of violence. We've got God regretting making humanity and starting over with Noah and his family. And then we have the flood in Genesis 6. And then everything happens after that. And then by the time we get to Genesis chapter 10, We've got kind of an interesting vignette, I would like to say. Uh, Genesis 10, starting in verse 8, we have a character um, whose name is Nimrod. So picking up in uh, verse 8, it says, Cush, which was the son of Ham, which was the son of Noah, right? So verse 6, the sons of Ham were Cush, um, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Uh, and then verse 8, Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. And then verse 9 says, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And in verse 10, it says, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Calneh, in the land of Shinar. And then from that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, uh, Rehoboth, Ir, and Kala. So the interesting thing about Nimrod, when it says that he began to be a mighty one on the earth, that word, that mighty one, it can mean uh, he was strong, mighty, or that he was bold, audacious, that he was, he magnified himself, and that he was a tyrant. Those are all meanings in the Hebrew language that comes from that. Now, I'm going to give an assumption, so this is Christopher's opinion, is that what Nimrod began to do is that he started a rule and an authority that crossed beyond his family bounds. Like He started to exercise dominion over people that weren't his descendants, which to this point in time, and I, the best of my understanding, you guys can jump in here, but the primary mode of human rule was through the patriarch, the father of the family that God would have spoken to. And Nimrod does something different here. Do you think that's fair, guys? There's some difficulty in all of this because there's some extra biblical tradition history that you just don't know where is accurate and where it's not. Um the age of some of these guys, it's supposed could have been what caused 
ancestor worship and mm-hmm. um, when households passed authority. Um, you know, I've, I've talked about before that the idea of passing from Adam and his authority and dominion that God gave him over the earth is, is actually what Sir Francis Bacon used to justify the monarchy in England. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's a lot of mental gym- gymnastics that he had to do to do that. And what John Locke wrote in correspondence to that. And, and I think Locke maybe even went a little further than, than I would. And in fact, listen to it via audiobook with Ty, the two treatises of civil government. And even as a young man, Ty was able to come to the conclusion. Well, basically what it sounds like is we're meant to be Kings in our homes where we should have the, dominion and we extrapolated on that idea to come to the idea of a commonwealth and each looking out for his neighbor kind of some christian ideas laid over Mm -hmm. but this this is a little more difficult because people lived so long yeah um and, and obviously we lost the plot when man lost that dominion we see in the garden and jesus actually references this himself that when he joins a wife they're to leave father and mother and become one flesh. Right. And and there's that idea of leaving and cleaving, which um, doesn't mean what we usually mean when we say cleave in the modern English language, but um, it means to stick together, not to, not to separate split apart. Right. Yeah. So they're um, there to break off and form their own sovereign right. family unit outside right. of the authority of any of their parents. And, and so you, there's so much going on with, with this topic. Trying not to get, sidebarred um but you know obviously they can form a commonwealth to kind of look after one another in doing so their their problem was they didn't separate the way they should have and and it does seem like there was some authority taken on here maybe grabbing that mantle from adam or or drawing that forward to himself where he he kind of set himself up to rule over a bunch of people Mm -hmm. um and you know, again, there's there's a lot of supposition that I think would would need to be made to to fill in some of the blanks. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, there's authority here that just isn't quite in line with what we see God's plan was for mankind. And I'm going to leave that so I don't get too far off into political ideas. I think that's fair. Um, but yeah, it's it's something a little bit different. And, and we can know that there are some things that went bad because of the fruit, right? Jesus said, by your fruits, you'll know them. He founded Babylon or Babel. What did they do? The first thing they did was they said, hey, let's build the tower to heaven. And they didn't say, let's magnify the name of God. They said, let's make a name for ourselves. And as a result of their their pride, their magnification of their own selves, uh, God struck them with the language problem and then caused humanity to then, instead of being monolithic, then to separate into the nations that we see today. Right. And and then we, we know from reading all the rest of the Old and New Testament that from there on out, Babel or Babylon is used as an archetype or a symbol of rule and authority that exalts itself against the rightful kingship of God. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is is that way. Uh, we see it used in uh, the book of Revelation very strongly, right? It's used as a symbol for Rome, anti, anti-Christ authority. Right, and, and really we can, again, going to have to extrapolate some ideas and maybe overlay some of my thought processes of what happened in the garden. But with what Eve was tempted with, and and we're not told where Adam was exactly in proximity to the temptation that was going on by the serpent, but the temptation was you can be your own God. You can be as Elohim. And that thought process is not original to, to humanity. And this 
problem. And in fact, we see it in Romans, Romans 1, the creature over the creator. And we exalt ourselves out of our position, which we see typified in Adam, in Nimrod, possibly in Saul, in so many kings from the Old Testament. And and then, I mean, like you said, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, um, these people that took on an unrighteous dominion in the place where God should reign. And while God left them king, and there's a really interesting aspect of this, we haven't really talked about Saul much necessarily, but one thing you talked about in the first episode where we were kind of explaining what we wanted to talk about was in Deuteronomy 17, God laid out his decree for the time when Israel said, I want a king just like all my neighbors. And God had laws concerning this king. And part of that was that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either the right hand or the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And what is the first thing? Well, not the first thing. What is the thing we see the first king do? First rattle out of the box. He lifts himself up against his brethren. He tries to stand in places where he's not authorized. And God condemns and removes the kingdom from him. And then we see the, the archetype of the king God wanted the people to have. He gave them a king that they wanted initially. He head and shoulders above everybody. I mean, this dude looks like a king. And now here's the youngest of seven brothers, the little kid that's out keeping the sheep. We weren't even bringing bring him in. But God said, hey, I want that guy to come in here. Um, and so we have this, this archetype of men standing in and taking authority that doesn't belong to them. And while Saul was still king, God had deemed him as an unworthy king. And there was punishment, not just for him, but because of his poor rulership, there was cascading effects that affected the rest of his family. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Jared. And I'm so glad that you reintroduced Deuteronomy 17. One of the things that has always struck me as amazing about that is that one of the laws was that the king was instructed to take the copy of the book of the law from before the priests and the Levites and make a manuscript of his own, like a handmade copy. And then it said here that it shall be with him and he'll read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. And then to your point, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren. And any time that we are exercising an authority that is not underneath the authority of God, then we are going to do it wrong. We are going to be lifted up with pride, selfishness, um, carnality, lust, and all those things which war against the nature of Christ in our hearts. And that's where we have to say, I'm going to be the kingly archetype like Jesus, not the shadow archetype of Nimrod, of Nebuchadnezzar, of Saul, really, who led uh, with his appetites in many cases and out of fear. So we understand that our kingship is, is rooted in the authority of God and in the nature of Christ. And any attempt to do, do that otherwise is going to be really bad. And I don't know, you know, this is something we've talked about every episode, the idea of not, or saying what we're not talking about. And there's an idea here of unworthy authority. I think in mm -hmm. a lot of my life, I've wanted to call it illegitimate authority. And part of that is, reading John Locke and some writings from the founding fathers and their thought processes about how they were really ordained by God to create a new nation and all of that stuff. And it sounds really good when you put God's name behind overthrowing tyrants. Mm -hmm. um, but what we see from David is, and Saul specifically, it's take it back further is while the kingdom was removed from his family he was not taken off of the throne. Right. And we see David given an opportunity to exercise humility before God 
and demonstrate before the people, putting God before his position and acknowledge an authority that God had placed. And so, you know, one of the things we, we don't mean when we talk about being a king is, again, this idea of stomping around your kingdom. I'm in charge. I'm going to do what I want. You're all going to do what I want. Um, and, and you're just going to live with it and deal with it kind of mentality because I'm the boss. And we see King Saul do that specifically and mm-hmm. grab authority. And we see other men do this in a way that was not ordained by God. And again, Jesus, in a lot of these conversations and, and ideas in dealing with authority throws back to the original plan, God's plan for man's dominion and being an image bearer of his in the earth. And it was working together, cohabitation with a spouse, raising children, being fruitful and taking care of having responsibility of the care of other beings, the, the plants, the garden, the animals, children, and not this idea of I'm bigger than you. I'm meaner than you. So you're going to do what I want and say, or else. Yeah. It's, you know, God is big enough to be sovereign over the whole earth, but I'm not. Sometimes I barely feel adequate to be the king over my little bit, you know, over my very small bit of land and my home. And, you know, Jared, I, I love the way you put that, that we get to be in charge of these other beings. And honestly, God doesn't need me to take care of anything for him. Like he, he, God does not need me for anything. But the truth is that God allows me to be involved in this process because he wants to shape me in his own likeness and image and in his wisdom. And he allows me to go through the, the challenge and struggle of leadership and stewardship as part of that process. And it, it, when you look at it like that, is it a privilege? Maybe. Is it a responsibility? Absolutely. All right. So let's focus for a moment about the archetype and what that really looks like. We have such a clear image of that archetype that we can find in Psalms 2. So I want to invite your attention to that text. It's not very long, but it's really full of some good stuff. And you know how much we love the Psalms around here. But it starts with a question. Why do the heathen, the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And we all assume that that's speaking of Jesus saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So we start out with this psalm where other authorities on earth, kings, are saying, let's cast off the authority and dominion of God and his Christ. Um, And then verse I love verse four says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh and the Lord shall hold them in derision. It's like, you guys don't even matter. It's like, what are you going to do against me? Then it says, he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And the quote is, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion and I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Here's the admonition to these kings who want to throw off the rule of God. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little, and blessed are those who put their trust in him. All right, so there's a lot here, guys. We see the um, assertion of God that his Christ would bear rule over the earth. We see the rejection of that authority by the authorities and powers on earth. We see the assertion of the truth of what Jesus um, would do to those other authorities 
and the admonition that we should kiss the son, that we should essentially bow down to his authority and not resist it. Um, and I just love this archetype. It's so it's so powerful and rich that we have here in the Psalms. Yeah, I, I love Psalms too. Um, I love the picture that it paints um, as God is that supreme being that is completely sovereign um, and that he turns over some of that authority to his son. Um, it shows kind of the, the Nimrod-esque aspect of the world wanting to take authority that isn't actually theirs to take. And God basically says, I have the ability to bring you back into subjection. In fact, my son will break you with a rod. And it was actually this psalm that framed a lot of the Jewish people's thought processes about what the Messiah would look like. True story. They looked at Psalms 2 and they said, what we are looking for is another David. Somebody who's going to be able to come in and conquer and take back the complete dominion where all of these other nations have tried to be insubordinate to the dominion of God. Um, now, we also know that Jesus didn't just come as a king with the ability to recapture that authority and that dominion, but he did it in a way that was so different than what they were looking for, which is why they missed the point of Jesus being the Messiah. They weren't looking for a servant king. They were looking for this big time conquering king. Yeah. There's an interesting, if, if I, if I could, Jared, you know, uh, to, to Jeffrey's point here, they missed it. They didn't know it, that he came. And I believe that's why John in the revelation, revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, I believe is the end cap to this prophecy in Psalm two says, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of the our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. And then it says in verse 17, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned and the nations were angry and your wrath has come the time of the dead that they should be judged. I love that feeling that in there and so john's like you you missed it you didn't see it but i'm going to show it to you and any jewish audience would have been able to see this statement and read into it psalm 2 so go ahead jared i just really had to get that off my chest <laughs> no that's great and, and it actually still kind of fuels this thought process there there's an interesting added layer I don't know that that's fair because I'm I'm probably reading more into the text than is actually there. To why we like you. Yeah. But when you consider the greatest problem of man, which, which is idolatry mm -hmm. and what we have done, the God's words tells us that God effectively views our pride about ourselves as idolatry. We set ourselves up in the place of God. That's right. idolatry. There is a layer here in, in verses one and two where we have tried to throw off God's cord and his anointed pattern, which is we rule under him. And we rage and we plot a vain thing that is to throw off God's cord. We are going to be our own gods. And there's this pattern here of man's perpetual desire to be his own God. We continue to fail after the pattern of our first father. And he failed after the pattern of Satan who wanted to be his own God. And we have the juxtaposition and the realization of God being the unstoppable force for which there is no immovable object. God's plan is going to come about. Jesus is going to rule. He holds them in derision. So we have this thought process of illegitimate authority and God's authority being demonstrated in Jesus Christ, that not only was he going to be the king, God set him up. It was God's plan. And 
God was going to establish his kingdom. And, and now we've brought in Daniel two and, and Daniel seven and these ideas of prophecies of Jesus. But as we consider the archetype and hold ourselves accountable to the standard of being Kings like Jesus, I, I think this is a good place for us to remind ourselves that in the archetype of biblical masculinity, God's plan has always been Jesus. Colossians one twenty three says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, there is no way the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ had been preached after his death, burial, and resurrection to the time Paul wrote this letter. Paul is pointing to, I believe, the fact that the gospel was prophesied in the Garden of Eden, that it was carried by people orally from the beginning of creation, that God had demonstrated the mystery of his plan, that it was always his plan to recreate humanity in the image of Jesus Christ and what that image was supposed to be. I think Psalm 2 gives us a little shadow of that also, that David saw this time. And while people wanted to rage against God, and, and David dealt with that very literally, mm-hmm. that God's plan could not be stopped. And Jesus Christ was always, and the gospel of Jesus and the kingdom of God was always God's plan. So this isn't something new brought to us by Christianity, but it's God trying to restore Christian or humanity back to the image that he saw when he looked at his creation and said, this is good. Yeah. I'm glad you brought us back to this idea and, you know, the core idea of the masculinity bit, because I've been seeing a lot on social media. Um, you know, there is kind of a resurgence of masculine communities of men's groups. Um, there are a couple, I don't really want to name any names just cause I don't want to think that I'm endorsing any men's group that's out there. And there are a bunch of them where you, you know, you pay a membership fee and you get like a weekly conference call and you get a mentor and there's rites of passage because our culture doesn't have very many of those nowadays. Right. And so they have, they're filling that gap and meeting that need. And there's a language that's used in almost all of them where they will, they'll call each other Kings or Hey Kings. Hey, I'm talking to you Kings out here today. And I'm like, that's a little audacious. If the person who's saying that is not placing their rulership underneath the authority of God. I mean, you got some 23 year old kid talking to his audience and calling them Kings. I'm like, look, man, you're probably not a King over anything yet. <laughs> you don't know. You don't know anything. Uh, yeah. yeah you may Nebuchadnezzar, think you Nebuchadnezzar is a very stark example. Uh, right. Um, so I think it really is uh, helpful to realign ourselves there. And that's where I'm going to I'm going to step in and say that just as much as the Jews misunderstood the prophecy of Jesus and how he was going to reclaim God's authority and dominion over history we have seen the way that men have acted and it has not been in alignment with this antitype or this type of Jesus or right. the um, what's the word that you keep using? Archetype. Archetype. There we go. Archetype. That, that isn't in alignment with the archetype of Jesus. Right. Um, when, when the prophecy was made that he was going to come, he was going to take back authority, but he, did, whenever he came on this earth, it looked so much different. You think about Matthew chapter 12, mm-hmm. for instance, is, um, he is being depicted as the Messiah. He yes, he does challenge the the Pharisees' understanding of the law. Uh, he proclaims himself as Lord of the Sabbath, but whenever they go out and they try to destroy him, he doesn't pull out a rod and start breaking things and start forcing them into submission. In fact, what he did, he said that whenever he noticed that that they were trying to conspire against him on how they could destroy him, he withdrew from there. And that's not something that the Jews expected from this conquering king because he withdrew. What we actually see him doing is being the servant that Isaiah prophesied about. 
and that that's how he actually ended up reclaiming this authority is by offering self, himself on the cross. And what I love about Matthew chapter 12 here is that it talks about that this servant wasn't going to be a servant who would strive or cry out. You know, a lot of the times whenever we think of a masculine man, he's loud, he's boisterous, he's powerful. But Isaiah says that the Messiah wasn't going to be like that. He wasn't going to be running into battle with this warrior cry. He was going to be in control. And, and I believe it's the actual definition of meekness, where you have the ability, but you choose to restrain yourself and control yourself. And that's what we see Jesus doing. Um, he wasn't someone that was heard in the streets. He wasn't someone who was going to break a bruised reed. And if you're unfamiliar with what that emblem is talking about, it, it's signifying feebleness and a lack of stability. And it, it's essentially saying Jesus isn't going to go kick somebody when they're down. But instead, he's actually going to try to bind them up and help them. And in Matthew chapter 20, we see kind of why Jesus is a different king, a different archetype king than what the world is used to seeing. It says in verse 25 that Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I'm going to try to take all of these thoughts and pull them together real quickly. The world sees masculine traits and they try to hyper identify in those particular masculine traits. The big boisterous nature, the lording over their wife and their kids and their so on. You've got the, the Tim Taylor and home improvement that it does the the manly bark. And that's not what Jesus did. And I don't believe that's what he calls us to be in terms of kings. I believe that our leadership in our family, in our homes, looks much different than what it is likely a lot of these men's groups that you're referring to, Christopher, are pointing men towards. Yeah, probably so. so Go ahead, Jerry. What Jesus showed us in the ideal masculinity is strength is the ability to stay the course, no matter the personal cost. And what I mean by stay the course is doing what is good overall, no matter the cost to yourself. It wasn't this idea of ruling with rod of iron, which is what the people wanted. They wanted a security of, I don't have to think for myself. I don't have to do, I've got a king to go before me. I'm reminded some of what the people said to Samuel when they wanted a king. We will have a king to go before us in our battles. Yeah, I read that just today, actually, in the in the Old Testament. Not, not even in relation to this, but yeah, it struck me. We want a king to fight our battles. Right. And... While Jesus offers to fight our battles with us, God works alongside us through his spirit. We're called to be out in front for our families, to shoulder that load. And, and what we see, and I think if you, if you look at man's curses, at humanity's curses from the beginning, and I've already talked about how we sin after the pattern of our first father over and over again, one thing we want to do is delegate that necessary authority that we remove ourselves from the decision process because conflict is hard. And one way that we make conflict easier is by being the loudest and by being the strongest and by being the most intense. You know, one thing I've talked to people about is as we remove God from the equation of societal life we devolve into a baser instinct that is really below humanity but that's i'm gonna stop right there because we'll get off on another topic but it becomes survival of the fittest and rule of the cruelest because there's always someone willing to get power 
by doing the things that you're not willing to do. Right. And they will, we will destroy one another in doing this, which is not what God wanted. He created us in his image to be caretakers, to be providers. Well, Go ahead. And that's the distinction we see Jesus laying out for his people in Matthew 20. He says, you look around you at the nations around you, the Gentiles around you, and you look at their leadership style. They stomp over everybody. They climb over everybody. They are the loudest. They are. They show themselves to be the strongest. He says, but that's not going to be the way that it is among you, among my people. Because if you really want to be great, then you're going to be a servant. I think that that brings back some of the things that we introduced in the first episode of this month. And that is that a king should be the first to go into battle. If there's going to be a life that's going to be given, then that king's going to lay his life down first. And we see that in the archetype of Jesus, where he is willing to lay his life down, not for what's best for him, but what is best for his people. And that's one of the important aspects of, I believe, this archetype of king in relation to us, is that it, it looks different than maybe some of the husband and fathering styles that you may have seen traditionally. Right. It may look like somebody who never gets to do what they want to do, but what they're doing is they're leading their family well because they're willing to lay down their life. Well, and for Kings that are doing it well to their subjects, it does kind of look like they get to do whatever they want. Think right. about how our perspectives have changed about what our dads got to do from the time we were little to what we see now looking back. Yeah. They didn't carry that burden and make it look like it was heavy. Right. A lot of the times. Now life gets on you sometimes. And I'm sure there are times if I thought hard enough, I could think of dad, you know, making where I could tell, you know, this is heavy, but most of the time it's like dad gets to do whatever he wants. And and I don't mean that to, to sound like dad just did whatever he wanted. He just didn't make that burden look heavy. As we consider this archetype and, and look at considering Kings from the old Testament, there's some pattern we have of instruction given to a King in Proverbs 31. Yeah. And it's the writings of a mother to her son about what a king is supposed to do, what is right and fit for a king, as it were. And a lot of times we look at these things, especially the latter part of the chapter, and we compare them to our wives or mothers or grandmothers, whatever. But I think looking at this in context, we should see that this is a pattern laid out from a mom telling her son how to be a king. And it's, I love verse four. It is not fit for Kings or it's not for Kings. Oh, Lemuel. It is not for Kings to drink wine nor princes intoxicating drink. You've got to be a sober person. And we see her go on to describe the kind of wife she should have, which is interesting. It really goes back to Deuteronomy 17, where God warned against marrying a bunch of women that are going to lead your heart away. And then we see his people do that. Right. And then we fast forward to what God wants for his people in the new Testament and husband of one wife being true to your spouse. Right. And giving your strength to women. I mean, that means just basically being a slave to your lust. And, you know, I think I was talking to my friend Tony the other day and we were talking about what it means to be a man. And I said, I think that for me, the switch really flipped whenever I made up my mind that I craved my wife's respect more than I craved her affection. And that's how you know that your instincts are coming online. Whenever you're willing to say, I don't care if I'm going to get the silent treatment. I don't care if it's, if doing the right thing, is going to cost me brownie points or put me in the doghouse or whatever. I don't care. I would rather gain the respect of being a man whose leadership is worth following, even if it's going to cost me in the short run. And, you know, if I could give any, any admonition to our young guys listening, 
you need to start off and you need to crave a woman's respect rather than her affection. And I think that that's part of what this passage is hinting at. Okay. Soapbox right. rant is over. Jared, take it away. <laughs> no, that actually helps lead into where this passage connects for me in the New Testament. So we have this idea of what a king should be, what he should do, what he should abstain from, and pair that with your idea of desiring your wife's respect, bringing these ideas or having Jesus in his archetype of kingship inform all of this. Now let's overlay Ephesians five and six into this thought process. Awesome. And we've got instruction or we not instruction. We have a comparison of what man should understand that being the relationship between a husband and a wife. And there's a specific teaching here that Christ or that Paul wants us to get. And that's the relationship between Christ and the church. But in this, we have a lot of good teaching that wives are to submit to their husbands, but the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ, the head of the church and the savior of the body. And that position was purchased for him because God ordained him to that for one, but that he laid down his life to obtain that position. Yep. He didn't stomp in here and take over the world as king, though he could have and rule the rod of iron, but rather he came in and laid down his life. And now we're revelation 11, revelation five, this thought process where he through quiet strength did what no one else could do. This Psalm two idea that God established him and he allowed God to establish him that he did what had to be done because he was the one that could do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we see in, you know, the, the tyrant um, doesn't woo. They take. And, and we see Jesus as it were wooing the church saying, I've, I've already, whether you accept it or not, I've already given my life for you and invites the church to come to him. And I just, I love that imagery. You know, Jared, as you were talking, I, I started thinking a little bit about Jesus as he was preparing to lay down his life and what we can learn from, from some of that, you know, he went to the garden, he isolated himself to talk to the father and the people who were pursuing him to kill him didn't get to see that picture. Some of his very close disciples got to see that picture. They got to accompany him um, in some of his isolation time, but even they didn't get to go the whole time with him. He continued to isolate himself there in preparation for this. And just kind of thinking through this idea of, as we get ready to make the hard decisions, Christopher, to mm -hmm. that we know that our wife is going to be upset, that she's not going to be happy with our decision, but she may respect us for it. The, the time to isolate ourselves and not allow the other families, all the other things that are going on out in the world to see us, but we isolate ourselves and our kids may look into the room and see us on our hands and knees praying to God. Our wife may see us through the door praying to God. But the fact of the matter is, is that we're going to him for wisdom. We're going to him for strength, for perseverance, for meekness, to be that servant that is able to lay down their life because that's what's best. And, and, and even to acknowledge his authority. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's a practice I don't do enough personally. Yeah. I love that example, Jeffrey, because in that moment, the only one that we really need to be listening to is God. We don't need to be listening to anybody else's opinion. Um, you know, obviously, in that point, we need to consider how it will impact our family, consider how that will impact our wife, consider her wisdom that she gives. But when it comes down to it, that's a decision that we make from the wisdom of God because we're going to be accountable for it. You know, I love that example, Jeffrey. Jesus was moving to the inauguration of his kingdom. 
he had an opportunity to take the easy way out with Satan. We're told that he offered him the kingdoms of the world. And it's not a temptation if it can't be fulfilled, at least to some degree, especially with Jesus. But he didn't choose the easy way out. We see him try and prepare his disciples, and they even chastise him and try to discourage him from going that way. And, and he has to chastise them and say, this is what I have to do. In going to the garden, getting that encouragement from the Father, and then acknowledging that his place is to do the Father's will and to do the work God has given him to do. And then to go forward as that suffering servant, but to be a king the whole way is is huge. And that's that sums up this archetype of how Jesus would have us to be. And carrying this thought process, and, and I would just encourage anyone, current fathers, to be fathers, granddads, trying to, to fulfill a Titus II type role where you're training men under you to consider Ephesians 5 and 6. We didn't really talk about Ephesians 6, but there's a lot there at the start of that chapter about not provoking your children to anger, bringing up the nurture and admonition of God to be the type of dad that your children can look at and respect and to understand that that authority is given to you regardless of the kind of parent you are, because it starts Ephesians 6, 1 is children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. So there's a natural authority that is carried down regardless of how good a king you are in your own home. But you can be a, a king worthy of having dominion under God, your father in Christ, your king and savior by modeling his example. Amen. And that is laid out for us beautifully in Ephesians 5 and 6. Just real quick, um, if you guys have never heard the song Hero of Israel, it's it's a song that was written by Keith Lancaster's son. It's also called Surely a King. Hmm. It's a really, really cool song because it it talks about the upside-down kingdom principle where – what you said, Jared, he was a king and he was going through the coronation, but it wasn't the normal type of coronation. He was going to lay down his life. Just a really cool song. So I'm going to plug that song in here. If you haven't ever listened to it, it's Praise and Harmony does it, Keith Lancaster, but Hero of Israel just has some really powerful lyrics. I'll have to check that out. So Jared, I, I appreciate that that admonition. And there's there's one other word uh, that I would I would like to ask our our dads and our husbands to think about, like what we are called to do as kings in a very functional way is to mold ourselves into an extension of the dominion of Christ into our families, and to do that to His glory. And to do that to the benefit of everyone in our household. And so in a very practical sense, what do I mean by that? Well, in our households, guys, you know how it is. When you've got kids, then come the rules, right? We had rules in our house growing up. These are things you do. These are things you must not do. And the Bible does not give us a list of rules that we have to have in our homes, like there, there are rules we have in our home, like about how much time that the kids get to use the computer to play a video game. There are rules about what has to happen before that can be a reality. There are rules about, you know, when you can have snacks and when you have to go to sleep and who sits where. I mean, we have rules for everything. And sometimes it's a little tedious and ridiculous, right? But here's the thing. As our, our jobs as, as parents and especially in this context as dads, moms are involved in this too, we got to make rules. And it's our job to make sure that the rules that we enact and do aren't made out of selfishness or pride, but the goal is to have the rules in our home be an extension of the dominion of Christ. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to make and raise these little Christs in our home in his image. And in Ephesians chapter 6, 
um, verse one, the Bible says, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And then verse four, it's key in here. And you fathers don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Not our own training and admonition. It's not my job to raise my children in my image. They're going to be in my image enough as it is for better or worse, right? It's my job to imprint upon them the training and guidance from God. And we do that in our words, in our example, and in the things that we choose to use as we govern our homes, whether that be our chore charts or our rules or whatever it is. And so, you know, dads, I just want to say to all of you out there, think about what you're trying to do and be deliberate and thoughtful with the end product and make sure that the rules that you implement honor Christ. And so I guess that's the one thing, the one last thing I kind of wanted to get off my chest for this whole deal is let's be an extension of the Christ's dominion in our home. And that's the best way we can be a king. Yeah. And, and that kind of brings it to what I wanted to wrap this series with. And, and it's something I just thought of as we were talking, you know, we've, we've talked about the roles of prophet, priest, and king, and there's really a lot of areas under the kingship of Christ and the dominion of Christ, the new covenant where these things overlap. And I think that's the way God meant it. In Hebrews, we're told that he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek and Melchizedek was a king that was also a priest. And I think we can roll some ideas of the prophet into that as well. There's legitimate authority under God and dominion under God as his image bearers. And that dominion to be legitimate under God can be summed up by this. Love the Lord your God with all, with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you're doing those, you are fulfilling what Christ would have for his prophets, priests, and kings in his kingdom. And that ties us back to the gospel, this idea of being remade in his image, to have legitimate dominion, which is servitude and service in his kingdom. So I hope these have been helpful. These episodes have been a lot of fun for us. It's, it's been interesting to kind of work through these ideas. Um, if it's been beneficial to you, we encourage you to, to like it, give it a rating or share it. And as always, we're going to end with a prayer. And I, I believe I prayed last week. So as always, we want to end with a prayer and we're going to ask Jeffrey to take us home with a prayer. Our father, God, we humble ourselves before your throne before your authority, and we submit ourselves to you. We pray that the discussions that we've had over the last month, looking at Jesus, looking at biblical masculinity and the, the different archetypes and how they can all fit together and help teach us to be men, husbands, fathers, that take on the characteristics of Jesus. We pray that these things have been beneficial for Jared, Christopher, and I, for the listeners. We pray that it will encourage people to look at Jesus, look at his characteristics, and be the image bearers that God have, has created us to be. We pray for your blessing in this. We pray for strength, for perseverance, for wisdom. We pray that we can accomplish all of these things to bring glory to your name, to your kingdom, and to teach others about Jesus so that his light can shine and people will glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.